0: This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Patricia Walsh Chadwick, author of the memoir, Little Sister. Good to have you with us, Patricia.
1: Thank you. Good morning.
0: Patricia Walsh Chadwick was born in the late 1940s, and her parents joined an extreme Roman Catholic commune or center uh, where Patricia lived until she was ousted from the group in the mid-1960s. After a rough patch of getting used to life in the outside world, Patricia earned a degree from Boston University, entered the world of finance, became successful, married, she now has two grown children, and also she's been an expert guest on financial TV cable networks and mentored young people. She lives in Old Greenwich, Connecticut. Can you tell me about the founders of this Catholic community in which you were raised. First off, who was Father Leonard Feeney?
1: Father Leonard Feeney was a Jesuit priest who in the early 1940s was really renowned in the United States. He was a poet, a writer, an editor, and a teacher. And he had traveled the world and was a charismatic speaker as well and he was part of this organization under the auspices of the Jesuits.
0: And who was Sister Catherine Clark?
1: Sister Catherine Clark, originally Catherine Clark, was a laywoman, a married woman with two children. In 1940, she, along with two men who had just graduated from Harvard College, who were in fact Catholic converts, she started... Um, An organization called St. Benedict Center. And the purpose of that organization, which was an actual place, uh, a place they rented right near Harvard Square, was to allow Catholic students at Harvard and Radcliffe to have a place to meet where they could engage on issues of their Catholicism. So Mm -hmm. she alone was the founder, and then she brought Father Feeney in Several years later.
0: Huh. And then in 1949, I believe it was Father Feeney or maybe Father Feeney and uh, Catherine Clark uh, founded the organization that your parents joined, uh, the Slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That sounds pretty serious.
1: Uh, it was serious. And in fact, it was uh, created in response to the fact that Father Feeney and other members of the St. Benedict Center, which included my parents, were increasingly under pressure to uh, use their influence not to be a force for separation between the Catholic Church and other religions, but rather to accept the fact that ecumenism was part of what Catholics should engage in. But in fact, they chose not to participate in that, but rather to express their strong conviction that the dogma of the Catholic Church, which said you had to be Catholic to be saved, i.e. to get to heaven, was something that they were not willing to compromise in any way. And when the Boston Church authorities and the Jesuits pressured them not to speak about no salvation as a dogma of the Catholic Church, they realized that they were pitting themselves against the Catholic hierarchies, and that was when they formed this religious community, which my parents joined uh, in January Mm. of
0: 1949. And your father, uh, Jim Walsh, uh, he was a Navy veteran, and he also was a a teacher, and he uh, figures in this whole... uh, episode with a couple of other uh, professors at Boston College. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. After the war, my father was on the GI Bill to get a master's degree in philosophy from Boston College. And it was there he met one of his professors who introduced him to St. Benedict Center. He was Catholic. The professor was Catholic. And my father at that point was a single man of the age of 29, having been in the war for four years. And he found The center a really welcoming place. And yet, if you remember, Boston College is a Jesuit school, and so when Father Feeney's uh, disposition towards the, the dogma of no salvation outside the Catholic Church became an issue, my father, who was teaching at Boston College, was warned, do not speak of that dogma. And my father said, I'm sorry, that is a dogma of the church, and I will not tell you that I will not speak it. So he put himself in a position uh, to ultimately be fired, which he was, along with the other professors.
0: Mm. And then in 1949, when your, your parents and, and your—well, let me ask you about your, your mom. Uh, her, uh, she was known as Betsy in the outside world?
1: She was. She uh, grew up right outside of Harvard Square, and she grew up Episcopalian. And when she was a very little girl, she had what she will call her moment of grace, in which she saw a a procession, a Corpus Christi procession. And at that moment, she said that she wanted to become Catholic and see God the way Catholics do. And so at the age of 16, she uh, was taking instruction, because her parents did not really want her to become Catholic. And then at the age of 18... The priest that was instructing her brought her to St. Benedict Center so that she could meet Father Feeney, and it was Father Feeney who, three weeks later, baptized her, and it was on that day that she also met my father, and six months later, they were married.
0: By Father Feeney, right?
1: By Father Feeney, yes, in September of
0: 1947. Hmm. Now, at first—so you went to live in this center— uh, Can you explain how that happened?
1: Well, my parents, when they got married, they actually, on the GI Bill, they bought a three-family house in North Cambridge. And seven months later, when my father was fired, along with the other professors, and after they had formed this little religious community in which they promised to obey Father Feeney, an agreement was kind of made that they would all pitch in and help each other. And at that point, my parents sold their three-family house and donated the proceeds to the center. And it was kind of emerging from that that the families, still living as families, but each with their own separate apartment, came together um, in a cluster of houses that was just a few blocks away from where the center was located.
0: So you you don't remember life before the the center, uh, uh, correct?
1: That's and correct. It, I was truly born into it, yes.
0: And at first, it sounds like you enjoyed life there at the center. You right, my earliest memories are filled with the sounds of laughter.
1: Very much so. So the community was ultimately, at that 1949 period into 1950, about 60 grown-ups. There were 12 married couples and then an array of other single men and women. And at that time, there were only about four children. But as these families uh, came together, pretty soon four children, about five or six years later, had become 39 children. And that brought us to a community of about 100 people. And while I had my family life with my father and my mother, and eventually four more siblings, Mm -hmm. our communal life was a very important part. We had mass, said in, said in a secret way, because uh, by that time we were not in favor with the Catholic Church. Uh, but we had all of our meals together, and all of what I call these aunts and uncles took me places, held my hand, took me down to the Charles River, took me walking into the center. And I grew up in this environment of all of these, frankly, many of them brilliant young men and women, adults, uh, that were surrounded me in my family. And yet, at nighttime, it was the family, and we all slept together and got up together in the morning and were very much a family unit. Hmm.
0: You mentioned that um, you, you had uh, the Father Feeney, I presume, had, had to say mass in secret. I mean, was he actually excommunicated?
1: He ultimately was. He had, the issues in facing him were that His Jesuit superior said, okay, you're not going to be at the center anymore, and you're not even going to be at Boston College. I want you to go out to Worcester, and you will teach English at uh, Holy Cross College, another Jesuit college. And Father Feeney refused to do that. Subsequently, when he was silenced by the the Archbishop of Boston, Archbishop Richard Cushing, he, uh, as well as my father, the professors that were fired, turned to Rome, they turned to the Vatican, and the Pope's office, not the Pope himself perhaps, but his office basically said to Father Fini, you need to come over to Rome and we, there will be an inquiry, we will talk about it, and he refused to do that. So ultimately, the excommunication, which came through in 1953, was not because he held a dogma, which we all know the Catholic Church did subscribe to but
0: rather it was for disobedience. Hmm. Now, when you were five, I guess it would be about 1953, the uh, organization at this uh, commune or center uh, changed everybody's names. Your father became Brother James Aloysius, and your mother became Sister Elizabeth Ann. And and I don't know if this is exactly when it happened, but more than just the name changing— they, in a way, were no longer your parents?
1: Well, the community did really turn into a kind of monastic environment. We had silence in the hallways, and again, I no longer called my parents Mommy and Daddy. I addressed them uh, by their religious names, and in fact, their clothes all changed. They now wore long black skirts. And uh, black shoes, everybody was dressed identically. The men wore black suits. And so you could identify as very much as standing out from, from secular people in the world. And in fact, Father then started to change the children's names. And I had my own name changed, and I was known then as Mary Patricia. And my name was changed to Anastasia. That was the way it was pronounced, very much a Latin way of pronunciation.
0: And eventually, uh, the, this uh, center or commune uh, forbade the married couples from having sex?
1: <laughs> well, the first step was that the children, who were three years or older, and in 1954 I was six, so in my family, which where we were five children and two parents, my, myself, my next sister, and my brother in 1954. So I was six, my sister Kathy was five, and my brother David was three. We were separated from our parents, and the two babies stayed with my parents until they became three years old. And we then lived communally. The little girls, who were now called little sisters, therefore the name of the book, uh, lived on separate floors from the little brothers, and the parents still lived together. But shortly after that, and of course I didn't know it at the time, but my parents uh, spoke of it uh, after, many years later, Father Feeney went to my parents and said, have you thought, would you be willing, however he might have approached it to them, to take a vow of celibacy? And my father told me, he said, absolutely not. And my mother had said that she was really hoping to have 12 children at that time. Maybe that was idealistic. At any rate, when they said no, Father Feeney came back to them and eventually told them that all the other couples had agreed, and they were the only holdouts. And at the time, my parents felt that if they did not succumb to the pressure, they would be forced to leave. And the reason they wanted to stay was they felt that we, their five children, would get the best Catholic education. And so for that reason, they made the sacrifice.
0: Huh. Uh, Patricia Walsh-Chadwick uh, is with us on the Historians podcast. Your book is called uh, Little Sister. Um, since we've been brought up the sex, I mean, if when you say Catholic Church today in in the news, what comes up are a lot of stories about sexual abuse. But I gather from your uh, your memoir that that was not a problem at uh, this center, and was it called the St Benedict Center?
1: It was called St. Benedict Center, but we just referred to it as the Center, and many people did. and within that title of St Benedict Center was this religious community of the slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I can certainly speak for myself and certainly for the children whom I have spoken to. There was no sexual abuse. In fact, there was such an aura of uh, celibacy that was enormous separation of girls from boys and men from women, uh, that it was almost the opposite. Uh, We were being groomed to become celibate for life, and I didn't realize that as a child, and it was only as I was getting into my teenage years when I realized that my fate was not in my own hands, that it was preordained by Father and Sister Catherine that I would become a nun, which was something I didn't want. I, While I did not have the family life that I wished we could have had, And I thought all the time about what it would be like if I was living with my family. And while I had, had to go for weeks at a time without even speaking to my parents, I knew that I wanted a family, and I knew that I wanted to be married. And as I started maturing into my teenage years, nature took a hold, and not even knowing what and why and how it was all happening, I found myself suddenly very interested in the men, mostly the grown men, because the boys at the place were much younger than I was, and so they weren't of particular interest. Mm. And this was considered a grave offense. Not that I even knew or understood what was happening to me. Nobody Mm. explained you know, the facts of life, if you will. Nobody explained what happens as a woman, a young lady, a girl, becomes a young woman, or what happens to a boy. And so I didn't comprehend why I had these feelings. All I knew is that Sister Catherine excoriated me for them. And that didn't do anything to allow them to subside. It only meant that I had to try not to get caught. (laughs) <laughs> and ultimately, when I was uh, a senior in high school, so we went to school completely within our own organization, she informed me that I didn't have a vocation, which, of course, I knew I didn't, but could never even speak of. And that was when she told me that I would
0: have to leave. We're talking with Patricia Walsh-Chadwick about her memoir, Little Sister. Back in uh, just a moment, do you want to mention that we depend for uh, on your contribution's to continue the Historians podcast, we have a GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com forward slash 2019 The Historians. Uh, just go to that site and you were able to make a donation. And thank you very much. We're talking with uh, Patricia Walsh Chadwick, her book, Little Sister. So you've kind of laid the groundwork or why you were ousted uh, from the, the St. Benedict Center. But I asked you and you said how things were, you know, at least the beginning, very good. And, it, you know, there was no sex abuse as far as you knew. But was there kind of physical, not kind of, but was there physical abuse, other uh, things that you, you really didn't like about the center?
1: There was. Uh, this was a rule-bound place, and the rules were numerous. There was a point in time when we moved from Cambridge up to Still River. And Sister Catherine had explained to us as children, I was nine at the time, that this was going to be a wonderful new opportunity for us. We were going to be out in the fields, and we were going to have horses and ponies and cats and dogs, and it seemed so exciting. And in fact, it was exciting, and moving up there was exhilarating, and I kept thinking, ah, this is a new life now, and everything will be exciting and wonderful. And then it wasn't long before the new rules that were imposed once we, moved out to, um, once we moved out to Still River were so much more onerous than what we had had in Cambridge uh, that it was, it was night and day. Suddenly we were told we could not even speak to our parents. Then we were told that we couldn't even hold hands with each other the punishments for disobeying or even forgetting were extremely harsh. And instead of having a your mother or your father overseeing you, we had what were called angels. And there were eight angels, and each angel had four to five children. There were 39 children, so there were eight angels. And each angel could discipline the five children however she chose. And some were pretty laid back, and others uh, were extremely tough on the children, and uh, there was a, the the corporal punishment was often done with a huge strap or with a hose that was actually called the big punisher, which we were never supposed to see, but I guess little by little as children got beaten with it, and I fortunately only got beaten with it twice, but other children could get it for days on end, and so... There was a lot of physical abuse. Now, I think it is important to put some of that in context. The 1950s and the early 1960s, I would say, was a period Mm -hmm. of time when there was a much more traditional, old-fashioned, I would almost call 19th century way of upbringing. And you Mm -hmm. obeyed or you got punished. So I'm not necessarily saying that the punishments were way out of line with what might have been done in that era. But the important thing was our parents never knew. They were oblivious hmm. to it because it was hidden from them. And had they known, I think there would have been a lot of changes made.
0: Well, uh, the, you know, the time advances, uh, leaving out a lot of material from your time at the center. Let's talk about your time after the center. Uh, you're ousted after you graduate uh, from high school, and I'll just say this uh, rather than ask you to expand, but I thought one of the interesting things was they had you apply and get into Vassar, and you rejected going to Vassar because they really didn't want you to go anywhere like that. Um, but they wanted to do that to prove that they had a valid education system and you know keep their state accreditation. But you leave the St. Benedict Center uh, your family starts to enter the picture again. Your real family. What happens to you?
1: When I first left, I was in essence told I could never come back, and I would never see anyone at the center again. That meant the, you know, thirty odd children that I had grown up with. It meant my sib- my sisters who were still there and my brother, and I left without even being able to say goodbye. I was literally graduated from high school, and one hour later, I was gone. My parents, however, did enter my life again, and even though they remained up at the center, I did see them more because, in essence, Sister Catherine had handed me back to them. But after you have not really been raised by your parents for 12 years, there is an enormous amount of kind of um, reassimilation that is needed. Mm-hmm. As as you mentioned, I had been I had been forced to turn down the acceptances at both Vassar and Bates College, and ended up going to a secretarial school in Boston, and from there became a receptionist at a brokerage firm, and that was the first rung on a ladder that led me to Wall Street.
0: And I interject this at this time, at that secretarial school, which was called Hickox, you met my wife, uh, Mary Pritchard Cudmore.
1: I did. And she was truly one of the most wonderful people. I was so naive. I had not, I knew no swear word. I didn't even know slang. And she was more than like a, like a big sister, she had a beautiful sense of humor as well, you know, she was caring, she was kind, but I didn't know how to tell her where I had come from. It was so bizarre and I didn't know even how to describe my family. And so I never told her several times. I thought maybe if I tell Mary, she'll understand, she'll help me. But I never got up the gumption to, to tell her. And we just, as you know, communicated for years and years and have remained in communication with you. But she was one of those people that let me realize the world was not a bad place. There were people like Mary Cudmore there. I realized that I would be fine out in the world.
0: And ultimately you were, and uh, you know, a lot also keeps happening in, in connection with this center and and you, as you say, your parents they they leave the center and, and eventually all of your siblings leave as well, correct?
1: That is true. In nineteen sixty six was when I was kicked out. And in nineteen sixty eight, Sister Catherine, who truly was the leader of this organization, Father Feeney by then had really taken a back role and she was the force. She was the rule maker. It was her vision that was being implemented. And she died in 1968, literally two years after she kicked me out. And as is often the case with a figurehead in what can be described as kind of a cult-like environment, the place started to fall apart after that. And ultimately, in the early 70s, they reconciled with the Catholic Church. And now the place, the main house where I grew up out in Harvard, is a Benedictine monastery. And while... There may be one or two of the individuals left, because most of those uncles and aunts, as I describe them, are now into their 90s. They have flourished as a Benedictine abbey. And the sisters over across the way, where the children and the big sisters lived, they have become a pious order of sisters, and they've taught catechism for years. They've had an open environment, and it's a far cry from the environment that I grew up in, where... You know, parents weren't even allowed to go to their own families' funerals when people out in the world died. So there's been mm. a huge and marked change, and uh, obviously for the better, there is no more uh, segregation of families and, and that kind of thing. And in fact, uh, of the 39 children, sadly a few of them have already died, but uh, only a couple have remained in religious life.
0: Mm. And Father Feeney was was also reconciled to Rome or the Vatican, correct?
1: He was. It was he. It was only he who was excommunicated. But by virtue of us, the rest of us, continuing to take the sacraments from him, we were, in essence, also excommunicated. But it was Mm -hmm. only Father that the letter came to, and it was he who was reconciled with Rome. That is correct.
0: You uh, married your husband, John, in an Episcopalian service, but later you had a Catholic wedding. Why was that?
1: Well, I, I am Catholic. I was Catholic, but my husband is Episcopalian, and he did not want to be Catholic or married in the Catholic Church. And, and at the time, he was divorced, and his uh, ex-wife was still alive, and they had three children. So we got married in the Episcopalian Church, but uh, sadly, his ex-wife died far too young, And it was just then that I realized, well, he's a widow now, or a widower, and we could be married. And so I went to Still River, to the abbot there, who was one of the big brothers that I knew as a child, and I said, and it was just, I was 49, and it was about to be my 50th birthday, and I said, would you give us a Catholic blessing for our marriage? And he said, of course. Well, he went far Much farther than that, we actually went to St. Teresa's Church in the center of town, because I wanted this to be a very, very quiet affair. I was not trying to, you know, tell everybody Mm -hmm. what we were doing. My parents were there, and a very dear friend. And he actually went through the entire marriage service in a Catholic marriage, which I had not been expecting, and which was actually very, very pleasing to me. So when I was 49, about, you know, 12 years after I got married we uh, had a Catholic
0: wedding. We're just out of time. Patricia Walsh Chadwick's book is a memoir called Little Sister. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.